0: We're jumping into the book of Hebrews today, Hebrews chapter 1. If you got a Bible close to you there, I hope you'll turn there to the beginning of Hebrews. Uh, In the Chronicles of Narnia, in in the book Prince Caspian, uh, C.S. Lewis beautifully uh, and powerfully illustrates the growing Christian's experience of an ever-enlarging Christ. In the book, Lucy sees Aslan uh, the, the Christ figure, if you're not familiar with the Chronicles, Narnia. And if you're not familiar, shame on you. Repent now. Um, but Lucy sees Aslan, uh, the lion, right? And in a burst of emotion, she, she rushes toward him, burying her face in, his be- in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Welcome, child, Aslan said. Aslan said, Lucy, you, you're bigger that's, that is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Growing souls encounter an ever-enlarging Christ. And friends, no matter what this week has been like for you, uh, no matter how weary or enthused you are feeling this morning, Jesus is what you need. He is what you need, a greater view, a larger view, a larger understanding, a larger love for Christ. That is what we all need. And this is why I am so excited for us to to begin to dig into this book of Hebrews in the coming months. This book centers our gaze on the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus, Hebrews highlights the greatness of Christ in a truly unique and powerful way, but, it, but as it does that, it, it constantly calls on us to also respond to Christ, to respond to his greatness and glory. In other words, I believe that in studying this, this book, will, it will help us to grow and in turn to discover an ever-enlarging view of Jesus in our lives. My hope is that as we, uh, as we walk, have walked through the book of Exodus just recently, right before this, that that background will actually serve us well as we dig into the book of Hebrews uh, as, and help us to even see more uh, and respond better to the truth about Christ that we see here. Hebrews, after all, uh, because it is written to Jewish Christians, deliberately connects so many of the people and themes of the Old Testament to Christ, We'll see Jesus in this book proclaimed as greater than Moses, as the great high priest, as the once and for all sacrifice, just to name a few of the connections. While while there's a mystery as to who the author of Hebrews is, right? Nobody really knows for sure who wrote this book. And there's a mystery about the exact recipients of the letter. We, we know that they're Jewish Christians, but we don't know exactly where or when or which group of Jewish Christians. We do know that this letter was written to Jewish Christians who have been suffering through hardship and persecution. So much so that, that some of them were beginning to slip back into Judaism. It's possible that they were Jewish Christians living in Rome under the uh, great persecution that the church suffered during the reign of Nero. The exact location, though, and situation is is unclear. But these were Jewish Christians, no doubt, who were suffering some kind of intense hardship and persecution. And this letter is written to encourage them to press into and cling to Jesus in the midst of their suffering, to not grow weary or lose heart, but to look to and cling to Christ. And that's a good encouragement for you and I as well. While we may not experience persecution in that same kind of degree. Uh, We too live in a pluralistic uh, society here, Uh, a pluralistic culture that, that can be hostile to the gospel at times and hostile to Christians. And so this is an encouragement that we need as well. And right away, the book of Hebrews centers our attention on the supremacy and the finality of Jesus. He is the final word from God, that speaks life and hope that we so desperately need to endure and even grow in the midst of great hardship and difficulty. That's what we're going to see as we we dig into these opening verses, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. If you haven't turned there already, I invite you to grab a Bible, turn there, and wherever you're at, stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful um, just for the means that you give us in in these days to, to connect, to dig into your word together. Lord, we pray that that our hearts would be open to being encouraged by it, to be strengthened by your word, to see our need for Jesus today and to cling to him, to, to grow in him, to see him looming larger and larger in our eyes, in our hearts, in our lives. Lord, help us to see what we need most is Jesus today and help us cling to him with all that we are and all that we have. pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. Uh, Well, when when, when you're going through intense suffering or intense grief, when you feel overwhelmed by worry and stress, uh, it's all too common in those moments to feel like God is silent. To feel like God's not there anymore. Or that he doesn't seem to care about what you're going through. So the, the author of Hebrews just cuts right to the point here to remind the reader that God is absolutely there and he is not silent. To steal a, the title of a Francis Schaeffer book, God, God has spoken at, at many times and, and in many ways. And he he spoke to us through, he speaks to us now through his creation still. Right? The psalmist writes in, in Psalm 19:1: the heavens declare the glory of God, right? The, the creation pours forth speech, pours forth speech about how great God is. God has spoken to us at, at many times in many ways, the author of Hebrews says, through the prophets. And the author here, in saying that, is referencing the entirety of the Old Testament. And he's referencing it and and regarding it as God's inspired word for his people. And, And he's speaking of the diverse ways that God spoke to and through his prophets. Think about it. God spoke to Mount Sinai, we saw in Exodus, through booming thunder and lightning. He speaks to Elijah with a still, small voice. God gave Ezekiel visions and Daniel dreams. God revealed himself through law, through warning, through exhortation, through type and by parable in the Old Testament. It was a progressive revelation, revealing more and more about who God is and about his ways. Yet it was lacking and fragmented until these last days when God spoke through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus arrived as God's final concluding word, the ultimate speech of God. Jesus is the the long-awaited conclusion that fulfills all the promises and, and realizes all the types and shadows of the Old Testament. And these opening verses here give us a succinct summary of that final word, proclaiming to us who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and pointing us to what what Jesus speaks to us today. First, who Jesus is. We, we are people who love greatness, right? We, we long to, to see and witness greatness, to discuss it, to debate about it. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I think a lot of us really love superhero mo- movies, right? We, we love greatness. We, we love the idea of, of some superhero with superpowers who can overcome, right? That's, that's one of the reasons I think a lot of us really love sports, Uh, to witness true greatness, like people who can do things that we can't dream about doing. And hopefully during this time of having absolutely no sports to watch, no real sports to watch anyway, except for the last dance documentary on ESPN focusing on the, the 90s Bulls teams, hopefully that has once and for all put to rest one of the most ridiculous debates of all time right? Uh, it, it is undeniable to witness the greatness of Michael Jordan. And, you know, to do that is to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is absolutely the greatest basketball player of all time. And all I will say to you out there is get behind me, Satan, with any of that LeBron talk, right? Just leave it. We love, but we love to witness. We, we love to debate. We love to just behold greatness. But the question is, Why? I'm sure we could list out a number of reasons, but one of them has got to be tied to our longing for hope. For Greatness communicates ability. It it communicates that there is hope to overcome the obstacles and the challenges that we face. Whether it's the Avengers defeating Thanos. Sorry if I spoiled that for you, but you've had like a year and that's your fault. Uh, Or or Michael Jordan uh, overcoming the, the bad boy Pistons. In the early 90s, we we long to see greatness overcome the bad guy, right? The bad guy that we use to personify all evil. But the real life, everyday darkness that we encounter is so much worse than a comic book villain or a hated sports figure or a hated sports team. We need real greatness that superheroes and superstar athletes are but a faint shadow of we need Jesus. We need Jesus. Many people, even many unbelieving people are okay considering Jesus is great, right? Sure, Jesus is a, a great teacher. He's a great prophet. He's a great man. But that's not enough. That's not enough. And Hebrews, Hebrews gives us a true picture of his greatness and glory. Some people refer uh, to these verses giving us a, a nosebleed Christology right? And that is our Christology, like our understanding of who Christ is, his person and work. But a nosebleed Christology. Why would they say that? Because it is so high. It is so lofty, so beyond us. What it says about Jesus is just so astounding. It takes you to the heights that make your nose bleed. Really, it's hard to even find in the Bible a place that says anything stronger than this about Jesus. And this is who Jesus is, right here in these verses. First, he is the son of God. Jesus is no mere man, no mere teacher or prophet. He is the son of God. For Jesus to secure our ultimate rescue from sin and death, he had to be both God and man. He had to be both God and man. He had to be man so that he could be our representative and, and, and be the, the, the life lived in our place, the death died in our place for us. But he had to be God in order to accomplish that. He had to be divine in order to live a sinless life and satisfy what was needed. For Jesus to secure our ultimate rescue from sin and death, he had to be both God and man. There are other passages in the Bible that emphasize his humanity. But as Jewish Christians facing persecution likely both from Jews and from unbelieving Gentiles, these believers may have been tempted to drift to viewing Christ as only a great man and denying his divinity. So this emphasis is given to remind them, Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. He's the word made flesh. We're we're meant to see in this final word from God a connection to those opening verses. Of John's gospel. Next, Jesus is God's appointed heir. He's God's appointed heir. As the Son of God, Jesus is the heir of all things, and his in- inheritance includes not only everything in this world, but, but the entire universe is his. But here's the amazing thing, believer, that Paul tells us in Romans eight seventeen, that believers in Christ, as believers in Christ, We share in his inheritance. As one 17th century commentator wrote, be married to this heir and have all. Next, Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things. Jesus is the word that that spoke everything into existence at creation. The entire universe poured forth from his word. And by his word of power, Jesus upholds and sustains that entire universe. Whatever Jesus says, whatever he commands is done, period. Surely the word that spoke the universe, every star, every planet, every molecule, into existence, and keeps it all going. Surely this Jesus, who could at any moment shut anything and everything down with much greater swiftness and authority than any virus or any government could dream of, surely this Jesus can sustain us. He can sustain us in our times of hardship, in our times of testing. He is more than able to see us through any roadblock of suffering that we might encounter. Next, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, if it isn't already, this is certainly where we're reaching the heights, where your nose should start to bleed. Think about it. When Moses was leading the Israelites out of Egypt and the Egyptians were pursuing, if you remember back in Exodus, God's glory came down in a fiery cloud and it stops the Egyptian army. They can't get through it. Later on, God's glory leads the people in the wilderness by a pillar of uh, cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When they come to Sinai, God's glory comes down on the mountain in thunder and lightning and no one can even touch the mountain or they would die. When the tabernacle is constructed and God's glory comes down to fill it, not even Moses can remain in the tabernacle and remain in the presence of God's glory. God's glory is too beyond what we can bear to see and live. But in these last days, Jesus comes and the same glory is seen in him. But Jesus doesn't simply reflect God's glory. He radiates it. It emanates from him. In fact, nowhere has the glory of God been more perfectly made manifest than in the person of Christ Christ the Son of God. In Jesus, all the majesty of God's splendor and glory is fully revealed, for lastly, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. This week, uh, Crystal and I dug out some old photos, actual photos, not things on a screen, but actual boxes of, of pictures that you you, you used to do that, right? You'd drop the film off and you'd wait to see what you got. Um, I'm old enough that I remember that. Uh, But we dug out some old photos from our time in college and some of the early days of our marriage uh, because we have a number of photos, obviously, uh, of Crystal's uh, dear friend uh, that passed this week in in that collection of photos. And as we're looking through these these sweet memories and photographs, we're we're finding these younger images of ourselves uh, and, and we're seeing glimpses of our children in them. Right? One photo of Crystal and the expression on her face in that photo, like from like the very first days of our marriage, totally reminded me of, of a, a face I see Leah make like 10 times every day. Uh, another one reminded us, uh, you know, of me, reminded us of, of some, some things we see in Seth. And then there's a bit of Levi kind of scattered in there amongst us as well. Our kids bear a resemblance to their parents. But this isn't saying that that Jesus bears a resemblance to God. It says he is the exact imprint of God's nature. In other words, if you want to see God, you have to look at Jesus. You have to look at Jesus. He is God. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. God. God in the flesh, the second person of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons who are each fully and equally God in eternal relation with one another. And that means that he is more than able to sustain you through any trial or any storm. That becomes even more powerfully clear as we consider what Jesus did Jesus, the final word, declares who he is and what he's done in these verses. The author tells us quite plainly that Jesus has made purification for our sins. And in these verses, don't miss this, the author of Hebrews is subtly telling us that Jesus has come as the true and better prophet that speaks God's word to us. He's come as the true and better priest who makes purification for our sins. And in a moment, he's going to show us that he's the true and better king who rules and reigns over the universe. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of, all, of the threefold office of the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. And as the perfect priest, he makes once and for all the sacrifice that accomplishes purification for our sins. We're meant to take notice that, that Jesus is always and continuously At no point in time has he ceased to be the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, but that at one defined moment in time, at one defined moment in time, he made purification for our sins. No matter what we perceive our troubles to be, friends, this is our real trouble. This is our ultimate trouble. We are sinful. We are sinful, every single one of us. We are sinful. We have missed the mark on God's call for holiness. We've blown it in almost every fashion. And because of our sin, on our own, we stand condemned of God's just judgment. We stand under a death sentence. And not only the death sentence of, of one day we will physically die, but that apart from Christ we will suffer eternal separation from God. And there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. Nothing that you can do. Nothing that you could ever do to make things right between you and God. Nothing that you could ever do to restore your connection to a, a holy, a perfectly holy and righteous God. You and I, we need rescue. And we're incapable of manufacturing that, manufacturing that rescue for ourselves But the word became flesh. Jesus, the son of God, the final word from God, entered this world as a newborn baby. And he lived a sinless life that we never could. And at the appointed time, at that one appointed time, he offered himself as the once and for all sacrifice for your sins, for my sins, for our sins. Jesus is God's unrepeatable sacrifice. Sacrificial provision for our greatest problem, that being sin. And on the cross, on that first Good Friday, he paid it all. Accomplished it. Done. It was finished. Our debt paid in full. Jesus did for you and I what we could never do for ourselves. In the Old Testament, like the law that was given through Moses, it it came to us and it says, do this, do this and live with God. It demands man's work. But Jesus came and he lived and died and rose, making purification for your sins. And Jesus says to you, trust this, trust this, Your rescue is found in believing in Christ and his finished work, trusting that that Jesus has paid your debt in full in your place. It's not found in offering your good works to God and pledging your your eternal commitment to him to do all this good stuff for him. No, it's found in trusting in Christ's finished work for you. We may not take much notice at the end of verse 3. But the original Jewish Christians who received this letter, they would not have missed the significance of this. The author tells us that after making purifications for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down. So what, you say? What's the big deal? He sat. Great. You see, the Old Testament priest's work had to be constantly repeated over and over and over, because his benefit was only temporary. In other words, the Old Testament priests never sat down. Their work was never complete. They were always standing, because no no sacrifice they ever made was complete. But Jesus made his once and for all sacrifice, and he sat down. His sitting down declared that his work, as he proclaimed from his cross, was truly finished. His being seated at the right hand of God, the the place of highest honor, declares that his work is approved and accepted by God. He is enthroned, the enthroned Lord, the true and ultimate King of all. And there seated at the Father's right hand, Jesus by his finished work, he continues to intercede for all of us who put our trust in him. Paul tells us this in, in Romans chapter eight, verse 34. He says He says there, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Just think about that for a moment, Christian. At this moment, at this moment, even in the midst of this pandemic, even in a week where we're reminded again of the wickedness of sin, the brokenness of this fallen world, even now at this very moment, Jesus is at the Father's right hand and he's praying for you. He's praying for you. God is still speaking to us. Um, He's still speaking for us in the throne room of heaven and he's still speaking to us through his Son, And this text helps us to see what it is that Jesus speaks to us. First, he gives us a word of assurance. Jesus speaks to us a word of assurance. He is the Son of God, the creator and sustainer of all things, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. This Jesus lived for you and died for you. He is risen and he is now seated at the Father's right hand. There is no more work that needs to be done to accomplish your rescue, to pay for your sins. You don't need to pay for them, they've been paid for in full. All you need is to feel your need for Jesus and to cling to Him in faith. If you don't know Christ, that is the invitation that is extended to you to see your sin to acknowledge it, to see your need for rescue, and then turn to Jesus and trust in him and his finished work, to trust that he has made purification for your sins. He has paid your debt in your place by his life, death, and resurrection. Christian, you need this word of assurance too, even in the midst of your sin this past week right, uh, if you were in Christ, right, even as you were lashing out in anger in that exact moment, even as you were giving in to your lust, even as you were feeding your, your greed and your covetousness, even in that, that very moment, at that very moment of your sin, Jesus was, was and is at the Father's right hand praying for you, speaking on your behalf, declaring that all of your sins have been paid for, And that you belong to God as his beloved child. Now don't twist that into some weird license for you to go on sinning and rebelling against God. But rather stare that in the face. And let it move you to give thanks and worship Jesus who loves you. And gave himself for you. And is still interceding for you at this very moment. Let his love move you to to live for him more and more in every way possible. Don't believe the enemy's lies that you're no good because of your sin this week. Don't believe the enemy's lies that you're defined by your failure, by your sin. But hear Christ's better and true word of assurance for you. He's paid it all. He's paid it all. You belong to Jesus. Nothing can separate you from His love. Absolutely nothing. There's a word of assurance here that we need, and there's a word of hope. I don't know about you, but on a week like this, I I need a word of hope, and Jesus is faithful to give us one. Maybe you're weary of your battle against sin, maybe you're weary of grieving the loss of loved ones. Maybe you're weary of the gross injustices of this world, the the racism, the violence, the, the evil, the hatred. Maybe you're weary of the fear and anxiety that comes from living in such a fallen world. Jesus gives you, he gives me, he gives us a word of hope. He points us to his cross in his empty tomb. He radiates to us God's glory. His glory full of grace and truth. And just Jesus reminds us by his cross that, that He's a God of grace and He's a God of justice. Those sins had to be paid for, but His grace meant that He was willing to pay them in our place. He's a God of grace, a God of justice, and that means that every sin and every injustice in this world will be dealt with by Christ. And he's returning. On the last day, not the last days, but on the last day, he's returning to judge the living and the dead. And on that day, every sin, every injustice will be dealt with. It will either have been dealt with at the cross of Christ and we put our faith in that finished work or it will be dealt with on that last day when he judges the living and the dead and he executes just judgment on the unrighteous who did not hide themselves in Christ. On that day, as it says in Amos 5:24, justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That might not sound hopeful, but it is. It is. It's hopeful because this fallen world of sin and injustice will not get the final word. Right? Jesus will be the final word, He is the final word. It's hopeful because when when he comes again, he's not just coming to judge those who are, are outside of Christ, but he's also coming to usher in the fullness of his kingdom and his glory. And on that day, he will make all the sad, broken things of this world come untrue. There will be no more sin. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more death. This is the hope that Jesus has secured for you by his life, by his death, by his resurrection, if you simply put your trust in him. If you simply say and believe, Jesus, I believe you are the son of God. I believe that you have paid for my sins in full and I desire to follow you as my Lord and my king. Jesus is the final word. May you hear it. May you hear in it who he is and what he's done. And what that says to you. May you see him looming larger and larger in your life. May you hear that word of assurance, that word of hope. And may Christ be an ever enlarging Christ in your view, in your heart, and in your life as you grow in his grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father help us to take in the wonder of of what we see and hear in the person and work of your son. May you grow us by your grace that Jesus might loom larger and larger in our hearts and our lives. Holy Spirit, help us to hear the word of assurance and hope that Jesus is right now speaking over us in the throne room of heaven. Help us to see Christ as he is so that you might enable us to become more and more like him living for the glory and praise of God in every way possible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.